We're continuing in our study of the book of Daniel, and we are at part two of chapter eight. And the question is, how long, Lord? How long? I don't know if any of you, in fact, let's have a raise of hands, shall we? A raise of hands for all of you who have at some point in the last 13 or 14 months said, how long is this going to last, Lord? I think many of us may have uh, raised our hands just then, and some of us probably have said that multiple times. I know I certainly have. How long is this thing going to last? Are we ever going to get back to worshiping in person again? All the questions that we have. Well, there are many difficult seasons in life. Some of our folks uh, that we know really well, some of our own congregation friends and members, have been through extremely difficult seasons. They've lost loved ones. I know that the Peterson family is continuing to grieve. There's an uncle now, Scott's mom's brother, who passed away. They just continue to go through grief after grief. And they may be asking, how long, Lord? And we're lifting the Peterson family up and sending our prayers. Joy and I knew somebody who had experienced a really stressful eight-year marriage. It was very contentious and contained some elements of marriage that we would not wish on anybody. It was a rough, rough time. She probably asked this wife, how long, Lord? For years. And finally, when she escaped some real abuse and found some freedom and safety, kept looking over her shoulder because she was so worried that the ex was going to find her and commit some heinous act. It was a really difficult season. So there were another eight years beyond the eight years of marriage when she continued to ask, how long, Lord, how long is this going to go on? I'm happy to report that after years of that kind of agonizing prayer, this particular wife found freedom, not only from that original marriage, but God eventually led another man into her life, a Christian man, and she's remarried. And I, I can't remember how long it was between that divorce and the time when she finally got remarried. It was a long time. And she's the happiest that she's ever been. She's serving the Lord. She's grateful to be alive and grateful to have two wonderful young men who have grown up to serve God and love him as well. Sometimes God does bless us in the long haul. But in the meantime, sometimes we just have to ask, how long? We've known several people who have gone through some difficult medical, physiological difficulties, seasons that just seem to last forever, and some that they continue to struggle with physical ailments. And I'm sure that there are times when they ask, Lord, is this going to keep going on forever? How long? Is this going to finally be relieved somehow? Can you finally lead the doctors to find what's going on and be able to treat this so I can get rid of this agony that I've been in? How long, Lord? We know somebody else who had a difficult situation because they hired a contractor and it was somebody they thought they knew because it was a member of their own church. This was a minister of music that I'm talking about. And they paid the contractor up front because the guy said, I don't have enough money to buy all the materials. Can you go ahead and pay me now and I'll buy the materials and then come and install it and do all this stuff. Well, the guy took the money and ran, moved to another state. So these people were left with a leaky roof and pipes that didn't work and some other big things that needed to be fixed in the house and no money because they'd given it all to the guy who absconded with the money. And they were thinking, how long, Lord? Fortunately, again, there was an answer to prayer in this particular case because several months after they'd been living in this stuff, trying to just chip away bit by bit at each little project, God sent a whole bunch of people 
through their congregation and friends of the congregation. And they showed up one Saturday with trucks full of stuff, all kinds of volunteers, and they poured in and got the job done as a gift. It was just a gift of grace. And they said, we'd ha we had no idea how God was going to answer that prayer, but we had been pouring our hearts out in prayer over and over again. And God answered. How long, Lord, was a question that Daniel asks in the chapter we're looking at, chapter 8 of his book, the book of Daniel. He had seen this vision that was recorded for us, and he wrote it all down and then had to ponder it because he was told to keep it a secret for some time. Now we know that the secret is out, and we can look back through history, and we can unpack some of these things because we have the luxury of looking into the New Testament that helps give us a great clarity so that we know exactly what many of these events meant. Some we still don't know for sure, but many we do know. It was a terrible season, and it was a terrible season that was predicted, and Daniel was really troubled by that. So we need to start looking at that today. What was the troubling thing that was going to come upon Israel? And then Daniel's question, but how long? How long is that going to last? So let's get a quick summary real fast. I'm going to run you right through this because we studied it in much more detail last week. The Medes and the Persians, represented by the chest of silver in Daniel 2 and by the bear in chapter 7. If this sounds totally strange because you just came in today, I would suggest that you back up and start at least a couple. Of, well, just start at the beginning of the series because this is apocalyptic imagery based on dreams and visions, and it would make no sense if you didn't have some of the buildup to what we're talking about today. The bear represented Persia. Same thing with the chest of silver in that original huge statue that had been dreamed of by the first uh, king, Nebuchadnezzar. And then we see that ram with two horns. That was another representation also of Persia. And then we finally got to see how Alexander the Great, uh, the thighs of bronze in the first dream, the leopard it was really fast and had the four wings on the back because he could swiftly move across the land. That represented the kingdom of Greece. And so this great Greek king was also the goat, not Tom Brady, as we mentioned last week, but he swept in and conquered all the known world in just 12 years, so extremely fast. But after he passed away, unfortunately quite young, unfortunately for him and his family, had two sons. They were both murdered, so they didn't take the throne. So the four fiercest generals, that okie-dokie, diadoki, the four generals carved up the empire into four different kingdoms. Those were the four horns that we're talking about in uh, some of these prophecies. And then we see that there was coming up into that same history as we were progressing through history because of the additional details through this parallelism that we talked about last week. We got it to see a little bit of a glimpse of this bold-faced or stern-faced man, and that was the fierce-faced king, uh, the stern man, fierce king. There are many different translations. It was the same guy, and that would be what we know as Antiochus, Antiochus IV, who reigned over the Seleucid Empire, one of those four kingdoms, from 175 to 164 B.C. He's the one who set himself up to be, quote, as great as the commander of the army of the Lord, in verse 11 of chapter 8. He even took on the name Epiphanes, which can mean a manifestation of God or the manifest God. How's that for arrogant? He was a legend in his own mind. Well, then we get to verses 23 through 27, which we did not have time to go into in detail last week. We're going to pick up there. So I'm going to read starting at verse 23 
And then we're going to dive into the details of that. And I think we're going to find a few things out that are quite uh, revealing, and it's going to bring us a great deal of hope because we get to see some of what God promises us in his word about some of the future events, many of which are not going to be necessarily good. Verse 23, chapter 8. At the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. Remember that we said last week that we're starting to have a shift in focus toward the people of Israel. Verse 25, he will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken, though not by human power. This vision about the 2300 evenings and mornings is true, but none of these things will happen for a long time, so keep this vision a secret. Then I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for several days. Afterward, I got up and performed my duties for the king, but I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. Let's pray as we begin to dive into this passage. Lord, I pray that you would give us your instruction and wisdom with the help of your Holy Spirit and continue to strengthen our faith. Give us a sure and steadfast hope a hope for a future in which you ultimately win out over all injustice. Help us to live out our lives faithfully, standing firm on your word and looking back in history to bolster that faith because we know that you always win and that you will win in the end. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Antiochus IV couple of interesting phrases that pop up in these last few verses of chapter 8. He did, in fact, rise to power and became extremely powerful, but not on his own. He had help, and he managed not only to find the help he needed around him to accomplish some of his evil deeds, but we get the impression, by the way it's worded here, that he had sort of a supernatural help, too. A supernatural help from a source that was not a good source that there was this power of the Antichrist at work, even though he was not the Antichrist. The spirit of the Antichrist had been poured out through the world, and Antiochus is a shadow of that. It's a foreshadowing of the ultimate Antichrist to come, future in our far distant history. Interesting to me that it would be noted all the way back then that people recognized there's some other spirit going on here. There's something happening behind the scenes, and they knew that to be true. They knew about spiritual battles and that sometimes human beings can be used by these spiritual entities, and Antiochus is a great example of that. Well, it's not a great example. He's a powerful example of it. He was not a great man. You know what I mean. He was indeed very destructive for quite some time, and he succeeded in everything he did, which just continued to feed his own narcissistic sensibilities, his behavior. He even had the phrase Antiochus, the manifest God, imprinted on all the coins in the kingdom. He was a master of deception. He uh, was a man of secret plans. And when it says that 
he destroyed many without warning, that probably had to do with the fact that he sent some soldiers to make nicey-nice with some other people in Israel to make it look like he was trying to extend a bridge of peace to them. And he was trying to show them that he was going to be their friend and he had so much to offer them. He was just doing that as a ruse because clearly he was just trying to infiltrate and get some good intel. He wanted to find out where their weaknesses were, what the people were like, and when the time was right, he ordered the strike, so to speak, and soldiers came in and they just mowed people down in Jerusalem and especially even the priests at the temple and took over the temple and started doing terrible things in the temple, including what happens here and we see in verse 25b and then 810. He was the guy who had risen up against the prince of princes because when you take on God's temple, it's like you're taking on God himself. And threw some of the starry host to earth and trampled them. We need to look at that phrase a little bit. The host of heaven and the stars, what does that have to do with? And, and what do they represent? Well, there are a couple of different interpretations, both of which kind of make sense. So it could be both and, or it may be either or. Not sure it really uh, matters all that much. I kind of tend to think that both of them have some merit. Interpretation number one to this is that the host of heaven equals God's people. There's a host of worshipers. And in that one dream that Daniel had, he said he was standing there and Gabriel was going to help uh, give him some clarity to that dream, but it said that there were thousands upon thousands of these hosts of heaven. Well, those would be not just angels necessarily, but all the people of God, people who were worshiping him. And so there's a big connection in Israel, and it seems to fit that it very possibly could mean God's people or the Jews in this case. And then the stars. In this interpretation, the stars would be, would be their leaders, the Levites or the priests. There were times back when they were moving through the wilderness, coming out of bondage in Egypt and heading toward the promised land when they would gather out on the plain and they would send representatives for all the different tribes and their leaders would stand out in front and they would be like the stars. There's some references in the Old Testament that make you feel like, yeah, that sounds like that could be the case. So as they struck down those priests when they were taking over the temple, they were throwing the stars to the ground and trampling on them, so to speak. But here's another interpretation. And this one, I started to really chuckle uh, this morning in our growth encounter when Steve started talking about the Ark of the Covenant. Because we're looking at that today too in Daniel because it gives us some background. He gave us a good description of the ark. Remember, it was that box covered in gold, and they had the cherubim, the angels on top, on that mercy seat, which was the covering. And inside, there was the uh, little jar of manna, because God had supernaturally provided for them in the wilderness by that manna that appeared every day, supplied their daily needs. There was the rod of Aaron, which got supernaturally used to display God's power and authority. And then also the Ten Commandments, which God had supernaturally given to Moses. So there's a lot of supernatural power represented in the Ark of the Covenant. And because God was supposed to have inhabited that space above the Ark, we understand that everywhere the Ark was, these people identified that with the presence of God himself. So when they would say the host of heaven were God's people, they would say that the stars were actually angels. Why is that? Because there was some connection in certain other passages, including a couple in Revelation that some people point to, that in the Hebrew mindset, they would think that there's a supernatural war going on and that we are winning the war in praise and in worship. That as we're worshiping Yahweh, the one and only true God, that the angels are literally battling it out and there are things happening in supernatural warfare that we can't even imagine is going on. 
so that if somebody could come in from a foreign land and conquer, as Antiochus did with Jerusalem in Israel, if you had been conquered, then that angel who was in charge of leading that particular area, in a sense, would have been conquered as well, and he would have been thrown down or thrown to the ground and trampled on. They used this kind of metaphoric language, but in some mindsets of the Jews, you got the impression they really believed this stuff was really happening and that there was a behind the scenes, supernatural in the heavenlies kind of warfare happening. I kind of think both are true. Well, there was a desecration of the temple that was just outstandingly awful. It was remarkable. Antiochus came into town. He set up a statue of Jupiter who was a representative of the king of the gods back then in uh, their mythology, he ordered the Jews to offer sacrifices to pagan gods in that same space, and he would kill them if they didn't. So he was ordering them to do something that they knew was wrong, but they did it. So his rebellion led, in a sense, to their rebellion. You see in several of these verses the term rebellion used again and again. I think it primarily started with Antiochus, but it led to perhaps not necessarily an unwilling rebellion, but it was still rebellion. As the people had a choice, they could have stood and said, no, we don't care what happens to us. We're not going to do that. Just like we saw with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego earlier on in Babylon. And then the worst thing of all, they felt it kept going from bad to worse to worser. And they got to see him order the offering of swine pigs on Yahweh's altar. Now that was an unclean animal. So that was considered completely off limits and horrible. But beyond that, he did something that was completely the final act of rebellion. And this was considered just anathema. It was awful. It was an abomination. They had scrolls, which they revered extremely because it had the word of God, the Torah there, the commands of God. And he ordered the Torah to be burned and thrown to the ground. And it was literally trampled upon. So when it says that truth was thrown to the ground, that's what this is talking about, because they felt that God's word was always true. And so when you could burn that and throw it to the ground and trample on it, you were trampling on truth. I have to ask, you think truth may be trampled on sometimes even in 2021? Hmm, something for us to ponder. Well, truth was thrown to the ground and the people realized that things had gotten so bad that they didn't know which way to turn. And I'm sure that this is what caused Daniel to start thinking and praying, Lord, how long is this going to last? But then we're going to see that he's looking ahead to something that's going to be in the future that's going to be even worse. And that's going to really cause him to ask, yes, but how long is that thing going to last down there? This is only a foreshadowing. And what's going to happen in the future was going to be even worse than what they were experiencing, if that were possible. The temple was closed. It says in 8b, and his sanctuary was thrown down as well. Not just the word of God, but the sanctuary itself, because he actually closed the sanctuary for business. They were not allowed to go in and do any kind of worship after a particular time. So after desecrating the temple of Yahweh in as many ways as possible, Antiochus closed the temple for worship altogether. Got to bring up a good question here. Numbers. We see a lot of numbers represented in apocalyptic literature. And sometimes, and it can be confusing because some scholars will say, oh, well, this one's literal. And some others will say, no, 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 but this is figurative. Okay, you need to take your pick. <laughs> Which is it? Well, it can be both depending on the circumstance and depending on the interpretive 
devices that we need to look at to make sure that we're looking at the literature of the time and what they use them for because we have to take that in, into consideration instead of thinking about it through our American mindset. Most of the time, and this really holds true almost always, they're literal when they refer to a specific historic event. And we see that played out in history because we have that clear lens of history to look back at and we can see, oh, when they said this specific number of years, it actually came true because now we have something in history and archaeological evidence to support that, to know that they literally meant literal years or days or whatever because of this event. It's usually symbolic. Numbers are usually symbolic when they're referring to character because that's more nebulous. It's abstract. And so to say things like, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, well, that was symbolic. It was supposed to say that that term a thousand meant unlimited. God owns everything, so he owns the unlimited number of cattle. Or showing faithful love, his loving kindness will extend to a thousand generations. Well, it didn't stop at a thousand and one. That was euphemism. It was a metaphor to show that he has unlimited loving kindness, which will continue all the way down through generations until, of course, it's going to be seen in its fruition in Jesus Christ, who's the representation of his love, and he accomplished all that was predicted in the Old Testament. So it's symbolic when it's God's character because he is unlimited, even in his character. It's impossible to quantize God. <laughs> and yet we can quantize the limited space and time that we have to limit ourselves in in our puny little history, and that's when it becomes literal. A lot of questions that arise about this 2300 days. It will take 2300, it doesn't say days though, it says evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated in verse 14. And then he says, but none of these things will happen for a long time. So apparently there's something that's going to happen in the future from when Daniel received this vision. And you need to sit on this and ponder it and write it down because it's going to happen. It's not going to happen for quite a while, but when it does, then within 2,300 days, this other thing is going to take place. Okay, boy, we need to unpack that. What in the world does he mean by that? It's going to take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Hmm. Well, if you take that as a literal day, a 24-hour day, that would come out to be about six and one-third years. And we don't see a lot of stuff in history that looks like it would be six and one-third years. Some people, and I think erroneously, have tried to connect this prophecy with some prophecies in Revelation. I don't think they're the same things. I think there's a good reason why the numbers really don't add up there. Some people have tried to fudge it a little bit by looking at other places and saying, well, the, the persecution is going to be cut short, but they really have to kind of push that, I think, and do some gymnastics and interpretation to come up with some of those things to make them match some of the things at the very end of time. I think this is really talking about this Antiochus who's going to come later from Daniel's point of view, that is, when he's going to be doing away with the sacrifices. That's where we get into this phrase evenings and mornings. In the Hebrew mindset, I had to go digging for this. I was scratching my head. I have three extra gray hairs right there on my chinny chin chin because this week I was digging into it by looking at different Hebrew scholars and some of the things that they were writing from their own perceptions as being Hebrew people, they said to say evenings and mornings, they knew that that meant sacrifices. They connected it with the, the temple sacrifices, and there were two every day, one at 9 a.m., the morning sacrifice, 
one at 3 p.m., the evening sacrifice. So to say evenings and mornings was just a phrase that they used to mean the sacrifices in our day. Well, there are two sacrifices per day, which means, aha, in this euphemism, this way of expressing the sacrifices that they would be used to talking about, sacrifices would turn out to be 1,150 days, which means just over three years. Well, Daniel didn't really even know yet what he was talking about because he was still trying to get some clarity and think, when is it going to happen and how long is it going to last? That How long, Lord? How long? Well, this 2,300 days helps us understand how long some of these events were going to last. Interesting that I noticed this, and I wish I could have found something that was so much more specific, and I didn't have time to read through this huge article that Mark Elwell sent me. It's a great article. I hope it's in there. Mark, if you find it before I do, let me know. <laughs> but they found so many of these great cuneiform archaeological discoveries in the Babylonian area and in that part of uh, the Middle East, what would now be Iran, that now we can see that there may be some corroboration of very specific dates. But what we can see here is that this is a little bit uh, estimated, but I wouldn't be surprised at all, based on my findings, if the time when the daily sacrifices were actually prohibited, not when he started doing the abominations in the temple itself, throwing down the people, uh, forcing people to worship pagan gods, setting up Jupiter in front of the altar, uh, offering a pig, burning the Torah, that took a period of time. And then they prohibited sacrifices altogether. I wouldn't be surprised to find out if from the time the sacrifices were prohibited until the time the sacrifices were reinstated, and these are approximate dates here, if that would be just about exactly 1,150 days. I would love to do a doctoral dissertation on that, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> and then if you start to expand that a little bit and move it back up to where he first took over, I wouldn't at all be surprised if when he first started doing the terrible things, the desecration in the temple, if that would have been the six and one third years so that there would be actually both happening at the same time. That's a big if on my part. I don't say that that's God's word. That's a speculation. And I would love to be able to dig into it to see if that actually turns out to be true or not. The fact is, and I like uh, what my friend Denny said last Wednesday, I think sometimes we're not supposed to know all the details. <laughs> I agree, Denny, you're right. I don't, think we're have to, I don't think we have to know every specific detail and we don't have to know it anyway in order to trust it. <laughs> we have enough information in history to show us that we can absolutely trust that when God says something, it's gonna come true and it's gonna come true exactly the way he said it was gonna happen. So we have that faith and faith is what takes us into the realm of trust in God. And that's what gives us hope so we can live faithfully. And that's what Daniel is all about. So we have enough to give us what we need. I just think it's interesting because of so much great archeology span now, I would love to see somebody tackle this one and dig right into it and come up with the exact dates to prove how it was exactly 1,150 days. Boom, that would be great. But God did as he promised. Then we can also see in this scripture that the bold faced man was broken. Just the, he will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken. Now we find out a little bit later, the very next part of that phrase, but not by human hands. We're going to look at that in just a few minutes, but he will be broken. And this is the good news. Even in the midst of this horrible thing that Daniel is imagining because of this vision, but God says, but there will come an end to that because this guy's going to be broken. He's going to succeed in everything he does for a time. 
but he's not going to succeed forever, and he's not going to dominate the entire world for eternity. That's not going to happen. You guys remember this movie, some of you? This is the original cast of Red Dawn, <laughs> where America is split in half because we have some troops that come in, and people are in classroom, and parachutes are coming down, and the teacher says, well, how about that? I wonder what this is all about. And people start shooting and it's all war. America literally gets divided in half because of foreign conquerors. Some came in the North, some came in from the South, but these young people became these rebel soldiers, these militia. And guess what they were called? You Michiganians are going to love it. They're called the Wolverines. <laughs> and they would start having these little skirmishes and they would do guerrilla warfare and, uh, fight little tiny battles enough to just continue to demoralize the enemy and they were going to defend their homeland at all costs. I bring that up to say that that's precisely what was happening with some people called the sons of Maccabee, the Maccabees. They came into play in this intertestamental period. We don't have books in our canonized Bible. In the Catholic Bible they would embrace that, um, apocryphal books of first and second Maccabees. I don't believe that they should have been canonized, and I'll tell you why in a moment there. I think it's kind of important that we recognize there are certain criteria by which people said, no, it's, there's good reason why that had been left out for years. And then we, when they had different councils to ratify that, they weren't voting on whether they should include them or not. They were voting to affirm what had already been used for years, clearly identified and was being used already in worship. And so they affirmed that by this council when they would uh, start to say, this is what we consider a canonized Bible. So we got this guy who's being struck at from rebel soldiers like the Maccabees, and that led up in Jewish history to things that they now celebrate in Hanukkah, because there were some battles that became victorious because Judah was going to be won back over again. Word got back to Antiochus. He started to understand they're going to overrun that. I'm not going to be able to maintain this area for very long, and that was the beginning of his demise. In fact, he didn't have a real glorious legacy this guy, Antiochus. In fact, some people, even his own contemporaries, some of the people that worked for him, gave him the nickname Epimenes. Can you see the similarity there to Epiphanes? Epimenes, but Epimenes means the mad one. <laughs> Good reason for that. Different historians, including Josephus, say that he did crazy stuff while he was alive, including going to public bathhouses and behaving very badly. And that he actually even applied for certain roles within the government. Well, he was the king. <laughs> Why would he go and fill out an application to become some other role within the government himself? He did, woo. He was out there. So you can understand why behind his back, there's, oh, look, there comes Epiphanes. I mean, <clears throat> Epiphanes. Hmm, yeah, right. He was the mad one. He was crazy. He did not leave the kind of legacy that you would expect for somebody who was a powerful ruler and who would die in a noble battle defending right and might, and people would put him up on a pedestal. He was really kind of a laughing stock, quite frankly. He didn't have a glorious death either, certainly not a hero. There are actually three written accounts of his death. This is where I get into my opinion that we should not include the Maccabees in a canonized scripture. There were things that I would put the Maccabees into the category of some of these apocryphal books that we think there were probably some Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, for example. That was clearly a Gnostic knockoff. 
so to speak. That was written by people who had an axe to grind. They were actually trying to insert things that could be fake news that we might call today, things that sound like there's a kernel of truth to it, but then they would take it in a weird direction because they were trying to actually discredit or take Christianity into a different direction. And it was not written close to the source as are the gospels that we actually have in our scripture today. And some literary style analysis and other things would clearly show, now nah, these apocryphal books have a lot of holes in them and we should probably discard them as not being something there that we should use as the gospel truth, so to speak. There are a few dates in history that they may have used that were a kernel of truth, and then they would depart from that. So it would be almost like uh, a historic novel. They would set it in history, but then they would take off with a lot of fiction that was in there. And I think some of the fiction that shows up in the Maccabees has to do with the two accounts of Antiochus's death. One of the things that should raise a red flag for all of us is, Number one, there are two different accounts, one in Maccabees 1 and one in Maccabees 2, and they're wildly different. <laughs> Not just slightly different, as we have in our New Testament Gospels, where we have, well, okay, we have a few details from this perspective that are slightly different and a few details different here, but they could be overlapped because those things could still have happened to the same person. But in this case, they're just wildly different. In Maccabees 1, for example, Antiochus is learning that the Jews had pulled down the abomination or the awful horror that had been ordered to be set up, that statue of Jupiter in the temple, and that the Jews had surrounded the city with high walls. They built it back up again. It sounds like that this Gnostic writer is borrowing from some other events in history and combining them in one timeline, one timeline event, rather than saying that they had already started to rebuild the wall the way it had been done at a different time in history. We're not sure, but it sounds like they're kind of combining a lot of things, as people can do, like we see in some of Dan Brown's book. We're just looking at a lot of things that didn't really come true when we're trying to say, okay, this is fiction. Let's remember this is just fiction. Well, as this uh, particular account of Antiochus's death gets into more nitty-gritty, we see that he developed a nervous disorder, and he was struck with bouts of fear and depression, and then there's sort of a... a time when he has a, a bout of remorse about all the bad things he did to Jerusalem. And you would want a writer to be able to say, yeah, he figured out that he was messing with the wrong people. It's like we would say, don't mess with Texas in Texas. Uh, and they would say, don't mess with Jerusalem. And so they would want Antiochus to be able to say, yeah, he just felt terrible for the terrible things he was doing. And the reason he was being afflicted so badly was because it was God's punishment, because he recognizes that it was God's people that he was punishing, and so he deserves what he's getting. Doesn't really sound like Antiochus to me. But uh, anyway, in account number two, which is in 2 Maccabees, it's quite different and very detailed. It involves his being struck with, and forgive my French here, a terrible bowel pain, mm -hmm causing him to yell at the chariot driver to say, drive faster. We can all experience times in our past when we realize that there may have been reason for us to say, drive faster. That's all I'm gonna say about that. Mm -hmm. Caused his chariot to hit a bump and he was going so fast that it hurled his body to the ground, injuring, and I quote, every limb of his body. That's right out of 2 Maccabees. It goes from bad to worse. There's another whole paragraph about the many things that were being afflicted uh, upon Antiochus. And then it says, I'm going to read you this quote. 
And so the ungodly man's body swarmed with worms, and while he was still living in anguish and pain, his flesh rotted away, and because of the stench, the whole army felt revulsion at his decay. <laughs> Isn't that gross? Mm -hmm. And doesn't that sound like somebody that you would really want to paint him in the worst possible light because of history? <laughs> so I tend to just push those off to the side and say, I'm not going to take those as seriously as I would take one of the actual archaeological evidences that we now have that is called the Scroll of Antiochus, Antiochus Scroll of the Hasmoneans. Now, this is archaeological evidence that tends to corroborate more with what we see in Scripture, which we take to be God's inspired word. And I'll take God's word to the bank. And then I'll look carefully at archaeological evidence to see if it backs up God's word or not. But I'm starting with God's word. That's my premise. And it's where we should start because we know that to be true because it has always continued to support itself. So I look at some of the archaeological evidence, like the Antiochus scroll, and it says that when Antiochus's army heard that he had been defeated in Judea, he boarded a ship and fled to the coastal cities. Wherever he came, the people rebelled and called him the Fugitive. So he had several nicknames, including the Fugitive. And so he drowned himself at sea. So apparently he just couldn't handle the pressure of being called the Fugitive, and he knew that he was not going to be put on a pedestal and remembered forever in huge statues, and so he drowned himself. Whatever the case, however he died, because none of these three are recorded specifically in Scripture, however he died, I think one thing is very true, and we can take this to the bank. It was not a noble death, and it was not by human hands. We learned that God's word came true. We learned through Daniel's book that God's promises come true and that these events in chapter 8 set up Christ's first coming. That's the important part of this, because we're looking ahead in history to those evenings and mornings and the timeline that all fits with Antiochus. That means it's not looking ahead to the Antichrist. It's setting up a foreshadowing of the Antichrist in the person of Antiochus. That's important, because God has this habit. It's a pattern all through the Old Testament of giving us these different shadows that come ahead of time, pointing ahead to something in the far distant future. That's precisely what he's doing, and it's in keeping with his pattern to show us what he's about to do. So we can take it to the bank that there is going to be an Antichrist, and it's going to be awful when the time comes there. And this was really, really bad, but that's going to be really, really, really bad. And yet that's okay because there is going to come an end to that as well. And so this, because it's sort of a, a picture of that, is going to help us understand that we can still have the same kind of hope then that Daniel was able to give other people looking ahead to his future. So we've got far distant future and farther distant future, and for us it brings us hope resulting in faithfulness. Well, Daniel's reaction to this whole thing. Hmm. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days, and then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. I can imagine. Let me give you a hypothetical what if. Now, I'm just using my sanctified imagination here. This did not happen to my knowledge, but what, what would happen if somewhere back along the way, like, uh, I don't know, maybe 1800s, 
somebody had a vision and they were seeing something about this virus that's going to take over the world. And we would think that's awful. That, that would be horrible. And they were watching people getting taken into hospitals and there were not enough beds for them. And people were trying to catch their breath and they couldn't. And they were trying to give them certain kinds of treatments and they weren't being effective. And oh, it was just terrible. And what happens in this hypothetical situation is somebody had that vision and it turned out to be the Spanish flu. And the Spanish flu comes out to be a foreshadowing of something that happened 102 years later called COVID-19. <laughs> and one is really bad and it sets up some future event. And so they're similar, but they're not the same event. Some people in biblical scholarship, the liberal scholarship especially, will try to lump all kinds of things together and they'll say, oh no, no, these are all fictitious events and they're just trying to stretch them out and make them believe that these are different people, but it's all really talking about the same event. No, <laughs> I would say no. There are different events in our own history that show us that some things can have similarities, but they can be very different events. And if somebody had seen what was happening in that future event, and if they had seen it like Daniel had seen that, they might've been worn out. They might've felt exhausted by even looking ahead at something that terrible. They would have been appalled by it. But what would have happened if God had given them the hope to say, but it's not gonna last forever. Within 18 to 20 months, all the people who have been struck worldwide with the Spanish flu are gonna get back to normal because that virus is gonna eventually fizzle out. And that's exactly what happened. It was a terrible virus, somewhere estimated because we don't know how many were accurately reported, but it was somewhere between 500 million people plus that were actually infected, and then 50 to 100 million lost their lives. That's huge. I mean, that's like three to 5% of the entire globe's population. That is some kind of plague, folks. So to see that, looking back in, in history and to see how bad that was, I don't want to diminish any of the deaths that we've experienced in this pandemic, but living through what we are living through now and seeing some of the measures that were put in place very early on, even though the deaths are horrible, it's far fewer than we saw 102 years ago. And so we see that there are parallels to it, but things can be very different as well. And my point is not to try to shame anybody. My point is not to bring politics. I'm not going to bring any politics into this. My point is not to shame anybody for doing or not doing a certain thing in that. That's not my point. My point is to say, there's going to be an end to this thing. And the good news is that when there is an end, we'll have some lessons that we can have learned because of history and especially the Bible's history. What's going to be learned from this? Well, we can learn from history that something ended and ours will end too. I've been watching a couple of people that they've got a good track record of honesty and truthfulness in what they're reporting. They use multiple sources. I see a lot of signs of hope that COVID-19 is gonna be ending. I really do. Now, a lot of people would say, oh, you're so optimistic. I don't know about that. We got all these variants and we got the India variant now and all this stuff. Folks, look back at 102 years ago and read the stories about what happened and how it finally petered out. This one guy that I've been watching has likened it to a forest fire. And when a forest fire burns enough wood out, which means in our case, enough people actually either catch the virus or they're vaccinated against it. So they become like wet wood. The fire can't catch hold like it could in the embers that would 
uh, go over to the, the dry wood or the kindling. And eventually, as it's looking for places to replicate, because that's its job, it has nowhere else to go. It just fizzles out, ultimately. Now, I certainly hope that's the case. I pray that that's the case. If it's not the case, God will still see us through however long this thing's going to last, but I think it's going to be the case. I think that by August, we could see a tremendous difference in what's been happening over the course of this thing by looking back in history. But there will always be the next thing. You know, 100 years ago, it was the Spanish flu. Now, it's COVID-19. There's still earthquakes happening. We've seen uh, great explosions of um, uh, volcanoes. Uh, we just watched a special on TV last night about Mount St. Helens. Joy and I were on tour with a group driving past Mount St. Helens just a little bit before it erupted. I mean, a couple of weeks, we were very close to it. We could see the steam coming up out of the top and people were saying, don't get too close to it. It's behaving strangely. And then we saw how devastating that was. And people around that area had no idea it was gonna blow half the mountain away and have this mudslide. It was very different from anything that experienced before. Hurricanes, wars, rumors of wars, all those have been predicted. Like I said before, when I was saying, we don't need an airtight, system of eschatology. We need an airtight savior. So what I see is, yes, COVID-19 will probably be history someday. It'll be in our rear view mirror and we'll see it far more clearly than we can see it as we were in the middle of it. But what's the next thing? There will always be a next thing. There will always be some new catastrophe and people are going to panic over it, but we don't have to. We don't have to panic. Why is that? Because one of the things that God pointed to in history is the thing that gives us hope. And that is that Jesus Christ was going to come on the scene at the end of these seasons. He was going to die to conquer sin, death, and Satan once and for all time. He's going to rise again. He's going to usher in those final days, however long they are. And we are hurtling toward the end days at a dizzying rate of 60 minutes per hour, folks. Tomorrow, we're one day closer to the end times. If somebody's eschatology lines up with that amillennialism, which means that as soon as Jesus resurrected and then uh, ascended to be with his father, that that ushered in the end times, and then they will last until he comes back again. Well, what if he came back tomorrow? What if it turns out that that's the correct view? Then we'd better be ready. <laughs> that's the whole point of this thing. We better be ready because God will make it so. He is going to identify the Antichrist and we'll all be going, oh, I see now. All these things in history start to make sense now. It starts to come together. And he's going to usher in his unlimited reign once and for all time. We have that to look forward to. So for those who are in Christ, for those who are placing their trust in God, we don't have to panic through the next big whatever thing is that people are trying to make us panic over. We don't have to panic. Let me read these words to you from the hymn, A Mighty Fortress, because they apply to us. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That's so true. All God will have to do is speak the word, boom! Down will go the beast, the Antichrist.
He'll destroy him and he'll usher in his reign. And those who are in his care, whoa, eternity will be glorious and blissful because of his reign. We can look forward with anticipation to a future when despite the trials that will continue to plague people, he will ultimately put an end to evil and the consequences of sin, including disease and death. And he's going to destroy Satan for good. That gives us hope. Let's live faithfully and let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is always true and continually points us to the cross because that is the center part of what we need to be looking at because that's where our hope comes from. Thank you for giving us that grace that enables us to show grace to other people. May we be gracious people who are showing what Christ looks like in our words and actions. And as your people, even though we don't know everything and we still have so many question marks, we don't have to know everything because we could just trust you. And we can say, God, I don't know enough to be a super duper biblical scholar and to know what even the 2300 days might mean. That's okay. We can trust you because what you did for us on the cross is unmistakable and it's so clear. There's no ambiguity in what you did for us. And we cling to that. We cling to the cross because by clinging to Christ, we're clinging to the one thing that assures our salvation and our future with you in your unlimited reign. And we're grateful for that. I pray these, all these things in Jesus' authoritative name. Amen.